podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? It's the Two-Footed Podcast. It's Monday, a bank holiday Monday here in Ireland, the 26th of October. And yet another weekend of Premier League football is well underway. We have two games tonight. We have Brighton hosting West Brom. We have Burnley hosting Spurs. Both of those should be decent enough games. Hopefully we don't get any repeat of the Burnley-West Brom fiasco from last week where, you know, neither team really wanted to win that game. Uh, we did have one of those games this weekend, a round of games that proves once again that I am maybe the worst person in the world at predicting the outcome of football matches. Uh, started on Friday evening with Leeds visiting Aston Villa. Villa were unbeaten. They had the best defensive record in the league. Leeds were without a number of key starters, and none of that really mattered. Uh, Leeds comfortably, comfortably beating a fairly average Villa side on the night. Uh, Patrick Bamford gets a hat-trick. He's in a great run of form. Six goals in six games so far this season. Whether that's an indication of his level or whether it's just a run of form, we don't yet know. But this was the consummate number nine performance by Patrick Bamford. Absolutely ruined Tyron Mings. Ruined him from start to finish. I thought Bielsa's tactical plan was exceptional. Went with a 4-4-1-1, which he hasn't used so far this season. Normally he plays either that back three or the 4-1-4-1. But changed things up here. And the combinations of Bamford up front with Rodrigo, Helder Costa coming off one wing, and Harrison from the other, it just caused Villa so many problems. Villa really struggled to get any sort of foothold, any sort of grip on the game. I thought we saw flashes from Grealish of what he can do. But in truth, he had probably his worst performance of the season. Barkley didn't have a good game. Their midfield struggled to have control. Like I say, Tyron Ming did not have uh, a good performance at all here. Completely at fault for the third goal. How he's allowing Patrick Bamford that much space in the box to do basically a 180 turn without touching the ball and set himself for a shot, I've no idea. But this is a huge win for Leeds. Uh, A way to a team in that kind of form. Puts them on 10 points for the season. Played six, won three, drawn one, uh, lost two. It's a really good return. Villa still on 12 points, four wins from five. It's the type of start they would have dreamed of. If you'd offered it to them at the start of the season, they absolutely would have taken it. So they can still be confident in, in where they are and where they're going. But this game did highlight a couple of weaknesses and a couple of flaws in their team that Dean Smith will have to work on for Leeds. It's more confidence. That's what this is all about. Leeds have to keep their confidence up. They have to keep playing their way. Bielsa, as we know, is one of the best managers in the league. And when it comes down to it, when it is a a battle of two even teams, you do tend to back the better manager. And on this day, there was no question he was the better manager. Uh, We rolled into Saturday then and got yet another surprising result as West Ham United continued this ridiculous run of form that they're on. And if somebody had told a West Ham fan 
that they would take eight points from games against the last four teams they've played, City, Tottenham, Leicester and Wolves, I think they would have laughed and said there's no chance. Even the most ardent, optimistic West Ham fan would not have predicted eight points from those four games. But they've deserved them. They were comprehensively better than Wolves, comprehensively better than uh, than Leicester. They showed incredible fight and determination to come back against Spurs from from the dead. 3-0 down, eight minutes to go. They just kept going and going and going. And they got their, reserve, their, their just uh, rewards in that game. And again, in this one, they get the early goal. And, and City, again, like they dominate possession as they do in most games. But City really struggled to create a whole lot against a very, very disciplined uh, West Ham backline. Aaron Cresswell played very well. Albana played very well. Even Balbuena played very well. And that guy's a car crash most weeks. But it is that midfield pivot of Suchek and Rice. That has been so important to everything West Ham have accomplished over the last four games. With Bowen playing off the right and Fornals off the left, it's not ideal for Fornals, but he's working very hard. He's playing exceptionally well. He played really narrow in this game. And he pressed Rodri and pressured him and harried him and annoyed him. And you could see he was getting in his head. And Rodri had a really poor game. Um, I thought it exposed a couple of things about City. Eric Garcia at centre-back is really highly rated by Pep and by Barcelona. And I I just don't see it. I can see he's a talented football player, but I don't think he's a centre-back. I think he might be a holding midfielder. But time and again, he's so easily bullied. West Ham found it really easy to play against him. Unfortunately for Mark Noble, West Ham are now undisputably better without him. And that may be the end of Mark Noble as a starter for West Ham United. One blow is they did lose Antonio to an injury. If he's out for any sort of period of time, that is going to be massive for them. He's been so important to their last four games. He's obviously a big physical presence, but he has that pace. He has that versatility. He's comfortable to drop deep or drop wide. He gives them a lot of versatility in how they shape. Um, If they're without him for any kind of period, they're going to be in a little bit of bother. But they do have Seb Haller to come in off the bench, who's a really, really good player in his own right. Different type of striker will require a slightly different tactical plan, but on his day is an exceptional player. So they they do have options there. They obviously have Yarmolenko and Lanzini to come into the team as well when they want to use them. Issa Diop can come in if they want to get a bit bigger and a bit stronger at the back. So West Ham are, are surprising people. They're surprising me, I have to say. Uh, I still I still have doubts over whether they're for the Premier League long term, whether this is just, you know, the burst of form like they had at the end of last season, whether this is just them having a run of form and then they're going to collapse again. Um, but we wait and see. It's the only thing we can do on this situation is wait and see. Uh, next up then, Crystal Palace travelled to Fulham, short journey, uh, and came away with an impressive 2-1 win. Wilf Zaha is... is Really, really good. He is playing like a man possessed this season. He took that Fulham back line to the cleaners time and time again. It was a brilliant all-round performance by him. He was the difference between the teams. Fulham, I mean, you, you look at the starting eleven, and there's quality throughout the team, but then there's just the odd player that stands out as not being of the same level. And unfortunately, Tim Ream is one of them. I thought he had a poor game. I think Scott Parker's in trouble. 
And if I'm being honest, I think Scott Parker, I've said before, I think he's the worst manager in the league. It's not necessarily on him. It is, however, he's just not done anything at the Premier League level. And I think he's struggling massively at the Premier League level. This was a game they had to win. This was a game they had to win. They had no choice in this one. You're at home to a team that you know is going to finish in the bottom third of the league. You have to win that game, especially with the start that you've had to the season. But instead, it's another defeat. They've got one point from six games. And it's not like they've had the toughest schedule. They've had a difficult schedule, but it's not been the toughest schedule. There's been winnable games in there for them. They haven't really looked like winning a game other than Sheffield United. And that's a big concern. They've got 14 goals conceded already this season. That's a massive concern. Only scored five. So, as I said, before the season started, they look like they lack goals. They do. They're conceding goals at a worrying rate. Now, they've been a little bit unfortunate in that Joachim Anderson, who they brought in on loan from Leon, has had a bad injury. So they're going to be without him for a couple of months. But at the same time, some of the defending that we're seeing, like that's just routine stuff. That's stuff that's not been coached properly. If I was a betting man, and I'm not, probably a good thing given my predictions, uh, I would be betting on Scott Parker being the first manager fired this season. We've seen that the cans don't wait. Like, they don't hang around. If it's not going well, they will remove the manager. No matter whether the manager has gotten them promoted, whether the manager has history at the club, they will just move on because they want to be successful. And I don't think they're going to be successful under Scott Parker. He is my one to go if a manager is to be fired anytime soon. Um, two other contenders for that, though. <laughs> Frank Lampard and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer uh, continued to insult football with two atrocious performances. Um, how a game with that much attacking talent ends up playing out like that, I really don't know. Um, I thought we saw some good things from from that front three for Chelsea at times, but it did all look like it was mostly natural talent having the result rather than any sort of coached pattern of play or anything like that. Some positives for Chelsea was that the defensive shape did look that bit better. Uh, Thiago Silva with two centre-backs protecting him did look better. The midfield did function that little bit better because they had a, a compact shape. Uh, Reese James and Ben Chilwell are both better suited to playing as wing-backs, so that does work for them. But there's a disconnect. There's something breaking down with that team. You could see in the pre-match warm-ups that there's, it's very rudimentary stuff. Like it, it, You don't imagine a Premier League manager putting his team through that sort of pre-match workout. That's the type of thing that you see down a park with you know, an under-15 team or a Sunday League team. Um, for someone that's done their, their pro license, it's not, it's not really what you're expecting. On the other side, I mean, this is the team that United have played in the last couple of games, Pogba off the bench. Um, and it, it has worked. It, it worked really well against Newcastle, but it didn't really work that well here. And if we're all being honest, VAR is the reason they got a point. Chelsea, very, very unlucky not to come away with the win because they should have had a penalty. The Maguire foul on Aspilicueta is as blatant a penalty as you're going to see all season long. It's like multiple wrestling moves combined into one. And the, the crazy thing is, like, you don't need to do that. There's no reason for him to do that in that situation. He's got about six inches of height. 
on Aspilicueta, probably about three stone in weight as well. And he's much better in the air. Like, the one thing Harry Maguire has in his favour is that he is exceptionally good in the air. Why he feels the need to wrestle Aspilicueta in that situation, I really don't know. It's bad defending for Maguire. It's bad refereeing. It's very bad from the VAR. It wasn't the first time that the VAR reared its head this weekend, but, you know, neither team really deserved the win. Chelsea, yes, they they could have gotten a penalty there. They could have scored a goal and they would have gone away with three points. So in that regard, they are unlucky. But they didn't deserve to win the game. They weren't better than United. United certainly weren't better than Chelsea. It was a very bland affair between two teams that really don't look like they know what they're meant to be doing. I think both of those managers are going to struggle to see out the season, if I'm being completely honest. Um, The form just isn't good enough. United's home form, one point from three, that's not going to be acceptable for long. If Brighton win tonight, United will be 16th in the league after after five games played. Um, That's just not good enough. It really isn't good enough. They're 15th as things stand. Uh, and, and Brighton have played the same amount of games. So they've got they've got a lot of work to do. They really do. Um, uh, the final game then on Saturday, and once again, VAR rears its pig-ugly head. Uh, Liverpool 2, Sheffield United 1. Sheffield United gifted a penalty when Fabinho won the ball very clearly um, and very cleanly outside the box. But because Ollie McBurney's foot was brushing the penalty box area, they decided it was a penalty. Now, I don't, I don't have a massive issue with that. I don't have a massive issue with them saying the incident took place in the box if his foot is on the line and that's the rule. What I have an issue with is the fact that it's not a foul at all. And once again, we're met with incompetence from the VAR, the PGMOL, and the attempts to cover up what actually happened here. So Andre Mariner is the VAR for this game. Andre Mariner, who's best known for sending off the wrong player and getting Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain mixed up with Kieran Gibb, Kieran Gibbs, um, and, and sending off the wrong player. That is the highlight of his career. That's what he's known for. Um, he didn't review whether or not it was a foul. So the referee gave a free kick on the edge of the box, and what the VAR reviewed was whether or not it was in the box or outside the box. It was then communicated immediately afterwards that they did not review whether or not the actual incident was a foul. They just reviewed where it was taken, and it was given as a penalty. So that's fine. It was given as a penalty. Okay. You didn't review the foul. Why? If it's a, if any penalty that's been given this season is given to the VAR to review, and then they review it, and decide whether or not it's a foul. But they didn't review this one for reasons known only to themselves. And you know what? I can live with that. I can live with a mistake. But to then turn around after the game and claim, oh no, we did review it. But you've already said that you didn't. There was a direct line of communication between Stockley Park and the commentators at the game. And you communicated immediately, we have not reviewed whether or not it's a foul, what we have reviewed is the position of the incident. This is the exact same thing that's happened last weekend, where Jordan Pickford commits a horrendous foul on Virgil van Dijk, but they didn't review it, they reviewed the offside. And then after the game, they came out and said, oh no, no, we did, we re- that was reviewed as well. 
you can't lie about these things. If it's going to work, if VAR is ever going to work, we need more transparency. And I've said before, referees, current or past, should not be involved in VAR. They should hire independent people and train them specifically as VAR. They shouldn't be trained as referees. They should only be trained as VAR because it's a different job. It set Sheffield United on their way. They get their goal. Sander Berger with a good penalty. And in truth, they had been playing very well to that point. There can be no doubt that Sheffield United caused Liverpool a whole bunch of problems in that first half. Uh, Liverpool had changed shape, gone to a 4-2-3-1, and it wasn't working for them. Jordan Henderson wasn't playing well. Ginny Wijnaldum wasn't playing well. Roberto Firmino wasn't playing well. They were all really struggling to adapt to a system that they haven't played a whole bunch. And the two in midfield have shown in the past they're not really that good in the midfield too. They're both suited to a three where their weaknesses can be hidden a bit better. They're both suited to playing with Fabinho in the middle of them. So that's basically where they work. Um, Fabinho, of course, having to play at centre-back due to injuries to Van Dijk and Matip. Uh, he had a little bit of a rough first half as well. Ollie McBurney caused some problems with his aerial ability, his physical presence. And it was. It was a difficult first half for Liverpool, but they do get the equaliser just before the half. Uh, Bobby Firmino with a tap-in after Sadio Mane's, Sadio Mane's header was saved. And the second half then, Liverpool did gain a, a bit of control and did look the better team. Um, Diogo Jota gets the winner. And it's a good three points for Liverpool. Once again, it's it's another you know bad result for, for Sheffield United. Like Fulham, one point from six games played. It, it doesn't look good. It really doesn't. Now, they had positives to take from this game. Some of the performances of the individuals, some of the players they brought on off the bench, I thought caused Liverpool problems. I thought McGoldrick caused Liverpool problems. Um, Ollie Burke caused him a couple of problems with his pace and his power. They got in behind Liverpool a couple of times, but there's a lack of quality that was kind of striking at times. I did think Ethan Ampadu played particularly well. And he and Sander Berger in midfield really dominated that Liverpool pair for large portions of the game. Um, so there are positives to take for Sheffield United, but at the same time, one point from six. It's not good. And they've got Chelsea and City next, I believe. So that's probably going to be one point from eight, and then it's going to get tough. Now, they're fortunate enough at the moment that Burnley, West Brom, and Fulham have all started the season very, very poorly. We remain to see what, what Brighton will do tonight against West Brom. But if Brighton win that game, all of a sudden there's a five-point gap between them and West Brom, who will have two points while the others all have one point. So that relegation battle becomes a four-team race for three positions, or you know, a four-team race for one position, if you like, to stay up. That's going to be difficult. Sheffield United would still fancy to come out of that, but you know, you wouldn't write off Burnley either. Um, that was Saturday, and it was. Largely an entertaining day of football. We had less goals than we've had in previous weekends. That's no bad thing. Um, there was no hammerings handed out this weekend, which is, you know, it's nice to see defences kind of settle down and start to do their jobs, basically. Um, but at the same time, surprising results. Like I say, City should be beating West Ham. If City have title ambitions, they should be beating West Ham. Fulham needed to win that game at home. 
And United needed to win that game against Chelsea because their home form has been so poor. They've been really good on the road, obviously. They've won their last 10 in a row in all competitions. You can question the calibre of opposition, but they've still won 10 in a row away from home. Three home games this season in the Premier League, only one point taken. And they'd had the mark of Chelsea last year. Four games, three wins. I expected them to win this game, but they didn't put up any kind of performance. Um, it's interesting to see that Pogba has been reduced to a bit part role. It's very interesting that Donny van der Beek doesn't seem to be getting any kind of traction in the team. And it really does put into question those stories that he was Ollie's top target for the summer for a midfield role. Um, and that Ollie played a big role in getting him to join the club. That does seem questionable now when we're this point in the season and he's not getting any kind of start. He's not getting extended periods off the bench. Um, one to monitor. But, you know, Liverpool get themselves back on track a little bit after the the hammering they took against Villa and then the, the disappointing draw in the derby. But um, Saturday was, was a decent day. Sunday then, uh, Southampton start off by beating Everton 2-0. Everton, of course, went into the weekend top of the league in great form and unbeaten. And looking like a team with, with real ambition for... Um, a top four position. I think I, I did pick them to finish top four when I did my most recent season predictions. This was not the performance of a top four team. Uh, Southampton were comfortably the better team. Danny Ings caused Everton all manner of problems. Che Adams was a nightmare to deal with. I thought the midfield performed very well and did a really good job at squeezing the space and compacting things against Everton, not allowing them to get into the rhythm, not allowing them to play their football. Everton were a little bit unlucky when Gilfie hit the crossbar. It was a great attempt. It looked like it was going way over. It dipped at the last minute, kind of pinged the crossbar. But it was the only real thing that Everton created in the, in the flow of the game. Um, Calvert-Lewin took a step back this week. He'd obviously been in great form going into this game. Didn't really get many opportunities. I thought Bednarak and Vestergaard dealt very, very well with him. Vestergaard is as big, as strong, as physical, as good in the air, was able to cope a lot better with the aerial threat. And then Bednarak was, you know, he's another physical player, but he was able to kind of sweep up, pick up the little bits and pieces. He was able to, to live with the pace of Calvert-Lewin because that, that channel between right back and right centre back is where Calvert-Lewin likes to make his runs. And Bednarak did really well to uh, to cope with that. So I think you do have to give credit to uh, to Ralph Hasenhutl for how he set his defence up. Little bit of a deeper line as well, which was noticeable. In previous weeks, he's played that really high line and been really, really rigid about it. But in this game, a little bit deeper, a little bit more cautious, a little bit more physical. Thought the defence performed really well. Like I said, the midfield compressed the space, squeezed Everton, didn't allow them to really settle on the ball, um, and and kind of ran them off the pitch. If we're true, if we're being honest here, um, a really, really good all round performance from Southampton and a deserving win, two uh, nil. The goals from James Ward-Prowse and Che Adams. Now, I would suggest that Jordan Pickford should save the Ward-Prowse one. I really don't think you should be getting beat from that angle. Uh, the second one with Adams, he gets unlucky because it takes the deflection off the defender and sort of bounces down under his legs. He committed to the, you know, whatever it was he was doing. <laughs> so he's a little bit unfortunate with that. But at the same time, you know, he really should save the Ward-Prowse one. Uh, there was controversy in this game. Um, Luca Dini was sent off uh, about 72-73 minutes in 
for trotting on the Achilles of Kyle Walker Peters when attempting to chase him back. Now, there's a couple of ways to look at this. Number one, he did try to foul him earlier in that that run. He tried to sweep his legs out from underneath him, f- failed, and then chased after him. He does put his hands up as if, you know, I'm trying not to step on him, then trods on the back of his Achilles, and then sort of leaves his foot right into it and uh, and takes a ride with, with Walker Peters as he goes down. Does, this is split opinion. Uh, you've got a lot of ex-players saying, no, it's accidental, he's put his hands up, blah, blah, blah. You've got a lot of journalists and a lot of fans saying it's a deserved red card, it's dangerous play, etc., etc. It can be accidental and dangerous play. That's the first thing to note here. So it can be both. It doesn't have to be one camp or the other. But it's the condescension of people like Gary Lineker, who I don't expect it from. I think Gary Lineker is one of the best in the world of punditry. But the way he presented his argument on this, saying that ex-pros know that it was accidental, that they know it was accidental, I'm sorry, nobody knows whether it was accidental or not other than Luca Digne. He's the only person that knows whether it was accidental or not. You might think it was accidental. You might believe it was accidental. You might put yourself in his position and say, okay, that's accidental. But the idea that he put his hands up and that means that it was an accident, it doesn't fly. Because he didn't have to continue running in the same straight line. He could have moved out of the way. He could have ran round him. So that, to me, doesn't fly. Now, I don't believe it was a malicious act, but it is dangerous play. It can be accidental and dangerous play at the same time. That is clear. I will say that ex-pros do tend to stick together, that they'll all make out that everything is is an accident, that there's no such thing as a dangerous act in football. We saw the same nonsense last week over the Pickford thing. Um, Carlo and and the Everton fans are obviously very upset about this. They think it's because of the media campaign uh, after the Pickford fallout and, and the the Richarlison tackle on, on Thiago. Look, if you get a reputation, you've probably deserved it. Everton's reputation right now is that they're they're a little bit of a dirty team. And they deserve it. They you can't argue that they deserve it right now. Now I don't think that's what they are overall, but based on last week and this week, they've put themselves out there as a dirty team. Luca Dini is going to be a massive loss to them. Now they are going to appeal it. I don't think they'll have much success. Like I say, it doesn't have to be malicious, it doesn't have to be intentional. It is dangerous play. You have you you could have broken the guy's leg. He has to be punished for it. So I think I think ex-pros need to simmer down. Just because you played the game at a higher level doesn't mean other people haven't played the game as well. You know, and there's there's definitely a difference between Premier League and a kickabout and Sunday League, but intention is still intention. Human nature is still human nature, and fouls are fouls no matter what level they're at. Um I don't I don't want to say that I think Luca Digne did it on purpose. I don't know that he did. I don't think it was malicious. I think he might have tried to clip his heels. I think that might have been his intention was to clip his heels, but I don't think he meant to to cause any injury to Kyle Walker-Peters. Um, it's just an unfortunate situation. 
but it's a deserved red card. And I'm not having anybody tell me otherwise. That is a deserved red card. And it capped off a really poor afternoon for, for Everton. Um, they made a change in midfield to bring Gilfie in. And like I said earlier, he had that really good shot, but it did not go well other than that for him. He did not have a good game. Ben Godfrey at right back is not an experiment that I would want to see again. He's not a right back. You should have just bought a right back if you wanted one. He's a centre back, and unless he's going to start there, he should be on the bench. Um, <clears throat> if you haven't got anybody else, that's your own fault. That is your own fault. You've left yourself short there. Uh, after that, we had Wolves against Newcastle, a fairly turgid affair. Not the most entertaining of games, but it did crack into life on 80 minutes. Raul Jimenez with a good long-range volley. Some people have said Carl Darlow should have saved it. I'm not so sure. I think that's been a little bit harsh. It's a really, really well-struck volley, and it comes through a crowd of bodies. I think it's just a really good goal. Personally, I think it's just a really good goal. I do think Rui Patricio should have done better with Jacob Murphy's free kick, though. Um, He's clearly expecting the left footer, but... I think he edges far too much to one side, leaves an enormous amount of the goal. And, and Murphy, look, it's a good strike. It's a good free kick. Gets it round the wall really well. Um, it's nice to see Jake Murphy doing well. He's had a he's had a tough run over the last couple of years. Uh, the, the move to Newcastle didn't really work out well for him. And he's another one that you know moved on too early in his career. He should have stayed at Norwich for longer. Um, obviously, his his twin brother Josh was there as well. Um, but he's had like loan at West Brom, loan at Sheffield United since joining Newcastle. It hasn't clicked from there. His brother's at Cardiff, doing fairly well. Um, but again, I, I, I still think both brothers would have been better off if they'd stayed put at, at Norwich. Norwich. Norwich's thing is to sell, though, isn't it? Like that is just basically what they do. They got around twenty-five million for the two brothers, so for them, that's money to reinvest in uh, in other players. Um, this was, a, you know, like I say, it was a fairly turgid game. Um, I really disappointed with, with Wolves on this one. Uh, thought they looked disinterested at times. Thought they looked a little bit leggy, as if they were, you know, struggling. I don't understand why Adama Traore is not starting. If someone can explain it to me, I'd be very curious to know. Uh, Roman Sice as a left wing back was a bizarre decision by. Uh, by Nuno as well, that the back three just looked all over the place. Connor Cody's lack of pace, staggering, absolutely staggering. Um, but look, the front three, Pedence, Neto and, and Jimenez. Jimenez you need there because he's got goals. Pedence and Neto, they're, they're good players and they've, they've got talent, but this team doesn't work without Adama Traore. And until he's back in the team starting, they are going to struggle to win games. Finally, then, we had Leicester City against Arsenal. I did say to Guy on Friday, this game will depend on Vardy massively. He didn't start, but he did come off the bench, and he did get the winner. It's 11 goals against Arsenal for Jamie Vardy in the Premier League. Really, really good performance by Leicester. Real smash and grab job. Um, I have to say, Wesley Fofana is an absolute monster. What a centre-back that kid is going to be. Played fantastically well I I think he just I I think they've got one of the signings of the summer there I I think he's going to be starting for them consistently for the majority of the season when they have everybody back I think you just bring Sayonchu in for Christian Fuchs you bring Pereira in for James Justin and just switch him and Castanier 
and um, Ndidi comes in for, for Mendy, and then it's a front three of Barnes, Vardy, and Madison. And I think that's such a good starting eleven. Casper Schmeichel, Wes Fafana, Johnny Evans, Kaglasianchu, Ricardo Pereira, Yuri Tillmans, Wilf Ndidi, Tim Castanier, Harvey Barnes, Jamie Vardy, and uh, James Madison. I, I genuinely think as an eleven, that is one of the best starting elevens in the league. It may even be the third best after City and Liverpool. I think you've got quality depth then in Dennis Pryat, in James Justin. Um, Ian Acho's there. They've got Mark Albrighton still around. Cengiz under, Hamza Chowdhury. They've got good players in that squad. There's a little bit of a lack of depth maybe at centre-back if they're going to play a three. Because after those starting three, I mean, Christian Fuchs is what he is. Wes Morgan has passed his best. Um... So that's maybe something they can look to address in the January window, but I do think the three four three suits the players they have best. I think if you can get Barnes and Vardy playing with Madison on a regular basis, you're going to cause teams an awful lot of problems with the the pace and power of Barnes, the pace, movement, and finishing of Vardy, and then the creativity from Madison. I think that'll get more out of Thielmans and Ndidi as well. And Pereira, we know, is one of the best one of the best wing-backs in the, in, the, in the world. So when he's back in the team, it just adds a new level. This this I think this is the best Leicester team ever. I think it's comfortably better than the team they had when they won the league. I think they have only a couple of needs that they would need to address. If they wanted to stick to a back three long-term, you'd be looking for a successor to Johnny Evans. But that across the midfield is ideal, unless you want to add a left-footer. So Castanier becomes your third choice, and he can play both sides. Um, Similar to the situation he was in at Atalanta, where he was the backup on both sides. He still played a lot of football. They could maybe look to do that. But then, other than that, it's a successor to to Schmeichel and uh, a successor to Vardy. So, from a starter point of view, you're not looking for a whole lot. You'd be looking for three long-term successors to players. But they can all add to the squad in the short term as well. I I think it's I think it's a great situation for them being. I really, really do. I think they've been really clever over the last five years with how they've recruited. And I think this summer they smashed it. I think bringing in Fafana was it was a great deal. Castanier, I mean they paid a hefty amount for him, but he is a good player. And Chengis Under has looked comfortable in the league so far. I mean did really well when he came on in this game obviously and this was a good performance from Leicester. Arsenal's problem remains an inability to create. I don't like the idea of Granit Xhaka at, at the back, I have to say. I thought playing Xhaka and Louise as two-thirds of your back three was a really, really strange decision by, by Mikel Arteta. He had the players on the pitch to do a fairly decent 4-3-3. He went 3-4-3 instead, and I don't think it worked. I know what he was trying to do. He was trying to get ball players into the team. So you had two ball-playing centre-backs who could you know, carry the ball out or play it through the lines. It didn't work. Gabriel was left with far too much to do. Um, the four across the middle, I, I thought, functioned quite well. Bellerin, Thomas Partey making his debut, Danny Ceballos and Kieran Tierney. But truth be told, I, I think the decision to play Granite Jack as a centre-back was a bad one. But... The biggest problem for them, like I say, is just that inability to create. There's just such a lack of creativity in this team. 
And what's frustrating is they own one of the most creative players in Europe and they haven't even registered him in their squad for this season. Mesut Ozil would improve this team. That is just the be-all and end-all of it. If you take Granite Jacket out of that starting eleven, move Kieran Tierney back to that left-sided centre-back role, move Saka back to that left-wing-back role, and play Ozil, Lacazette, and Aubameyang as a front three, that would be better, substantially better than what we've seen. That would give them a real creator, someone who can really unlock defences, make them tick. This did not work. And it's not going to work because they lack that creator. Willian is creative to an extent, but he's he's not like Osel. He doesn't have that killer pass. Willian creates more through his dribbling, through his set pieces, his crossing. Osel's one of the best in the world, one of the best we've ever seen, at just dropping in, picking the ball up, and just picking that pass that splits a defense. He's not even in the squad. He's he's just sitting at home watching his telly. Um, it's a bizarre decision by Arteta. It really is. I, I I'd love to understand what's going on there. I I think Mesodoso has been treated disgracefully. Um, that's pretty much it. We've got a couple of bits and bits of news to wrap up with. Marcus Rashford continues to impress everybody, and I would once again advise everybody to just go and check his uh, his Twitter account because. He has started a movement. He has started a national movement where restaurants and shops are offering meals for children through the holidays. And it's fantastic to see. Um, West Brom have done a very strange thing. They have decided to let Ahmed Hegazi go to uh, Saudi Arabia, to Al-Itihad. And apparently Slavon Bilic didn't know anything about it. So that's a bit of a weird one. That's one that uh, might cause some problems. He started their last game next to Branislav Vanovic. And look, he's not the best centre-back in the world by any stretch, but it's not like it's a position where they're particularly strong. And he is one of the better centre-backs they do have. And in a back four, he's probably their best centre-back in terms of reliability. I mean, there's limits to his game, but... He makes less mistakes than than the others. Uh, and then finally, just this is a bit of a sad one. Jeremy Histon, it's a very sad one. Jeremy Whiston, um, former Manchester City Academy player, uh, took his own life over the weekend, having been released by the club um, and kind of falling out of football and suffering from massive depression. And I just, I think it's it's important that, you know, we take the time to acknowledge that there needs to be more done to help players when they're released. There are good pathways and projects in place, but you know there needs to be more programs for young players when they're released to either help them find a pathway in life or get back into football, even if it's not as a player. If it could be as a referee, it could be as a coach. There are there's much more that we need to do in the sport to help young players when they're released. Um, that's a very sad story about Jeremy, Jeremy Weston. So, you know, I don't want to end on, on something as sad as that. So what we're going to do very quickly, we'll jump on the BBC gossip page and see if there's anything there. Manchester city, like the look of Julian Nagelsmann 
and Maurizio Pochettino as possible replacements for Pep Guardiola. Uh, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they're very, very keen on Julian Nagelsmann. I don't think he will leave Leipzig at this point or at this summer. I think uh, the Ajax manager, Eric Ten Hag, he's the one I'd keep an eye on for that role. Uh, Juventus and Argentina striker Paolo Dybala has been linked with Tottenham and United, but is also in talks for, with a new, for a new contract. His, his agent is linking him with clubs. He wants a new contract. Uh, Kylian Mbappe plans on winning the Champions League at PSG before moving on to a big club, according to former PSG midfielder and current club ambassador Yuri Jorkaev. So a current club ambassador is suggesting that PSG are not a big club. It's magnificent. Uh, Poland striker Arkadius Milik is set to uh, leave Napoli in January with Tottenham and Everton believed to be interested. It's an interesting one. He's in the same kind of situation as Osel is in, where he's been left out of the squad. Um, that's that's a bit of an odd one. Arsenal remain keen on signing Lyon and France midfielder Wholesome Hour, but face competition from Paris Saint-Germain and Juventus, and they'll face competition from others because uh, he's, he's really, really talented. Of course, they still want him. Arsenal boss Mikel Arteta says he's been honest without a favour midfielder Mesut Ozil, despite the player's agent claim, the, claiming there's been a lack of transparency. It's hard to know who to believe. It really is hard to know who to believe on that one. Uh, Liverpool may not may decide not to sign a centre-back in January and wait for a longer-term prospect next summer. That's from the Liverpool Echo, so that can be written off as garbage. Um, Luka Modric insists he is too old to emulate Wales forward Gareth Bale and return to Tottenham but I think part of that was that he did say he would love to go back but he does just feel he's, he's a little bit too old Real Madrid will only offer Sergio Ramos a one year contract and he wants two years uh, they should offer him no years and just say goodbye because he is toxic he is an absolutely horrendous personality to have in your dressing room by all accounts nothing but division caused by him um, Riyad Mahrez has denied claims in the French media, that he's openly discussed the possibility of joining Paris Saint-Germain. Okay. I mean, you know, it is what it is. Um, Newcastle's midfielder John Joe Shelby is for facing further assessment on a hernia injury that is set to lead to an operation. Just get the operation done and get back on the field as quickly as possible. I uh, hope he recovers very quickly, but there's no, there's no need for the assessment. You know you need the operation. He, he knows it. They know it. Put him through and let him get his operation done. Brighton's midfielder, Adam Lalana says that when he realised he was no longer required, he treated every day at Anfield like it was my last. Well, that's that's touching. Uh, Juventus and Barcelona are interested in signing Ryan Gravenberg. Of course they are. Everybody is. And Carlo Ancelotti claims um, that social media abuse aimed at his players was unfair and unacceptable. Then they shouldn't act like scumbags. And it won't happen. It happens to all players, Carlo. That's what social media is. A cesspit of abuse. Just get used to it, and it won't cause you that much uh, that much heartache. Uh, that's it. That's our show for today. Um, a bizarre weekend in the Premier League. No um, outlandish scores, but some, some surprising results. Uh, the table looks particularly crazy at the minute. Everton top, Liverpool second, Aston Villa third, Leicester fourth, Leeds, Southampton, Crystal Palace and Wolves 
rounding out the top eight. No Chelsea, no Arsenal, no Tottenham, no Man City or Man United in the top eight. That is, it's bizarre. It really, really is. No team left unbeaten. Last season, Liverpool were unbeaten until February. Uh, everybody has lost at least one game already. And we're only six games in. All bar Liverpool, Everton and Aston Villa um, look a little bit ropey, to be honest. Everybody's had some had some poor results, some poor performances. Yeah, defensively, only Villa uh, conceding less than a goal a game. They're actually right on a goal a game. Uh, everybody else is conceding more than more than a goal a game, and and some cases drastically more. Liverpool currently conceding two goals a game, more than two goals a game. Uh, so that's that's something they're going to need to work on if they want to retain their title. But um, yeah, a strange weekend, a bizarre couple of results. Uh, nobody left unbeaten, and uh, two games left tonight. So keep an eye for them. Do not pay the fifteen euro. Get yourself. An IPTV, get yourself a VPN from Liberty Shield, our presenting sponsor. You can find their services at libertyshield.com and use my code EPLVPN to get 20% off your hardware or software package. Thanks to Foxhaunt for our title music. Do check them out at Foxhaunt Band on Twitter. They have a new single, Out of Control, out now, a music video and the whole shebang. So do give them a listen. Do check them out. Check them on Twitter or any other social media platform. Follow me on Twitter at Two Footed Pod. If you've got any questions, anything you'd like discussed on the podcast, or any guests you'd like to come on, it's Two Footed Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thank you to Guy Drinkle, as always. Thank you to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Podcast Network.